Amen. Good morning. Like a bit of clonking. Um, good morning, all. It's nice to see a few. Yeah, thank you, Terence. Um, it's good to be here. So many of you will know that we have been doing a series on the kingdom of God. So we are sort of week three or four-ish, I think. The kingdom of God is a huge theme for us as a church. It's really central to who we are and what we do and why we do it, from how we worship to how we work. What we think about the past, the present, the future, the kingdom of God informs very much um, what Ballam Vineyard looks like and what it looks like to be a part of the vineyard movement worldwide, of which we are just one church of many who meet across the world, obviously today, throughout the week, in very different cultures, in very different settings. But for each of us as churches, the kingdom of God is particularly a major theme for us. And part of the purpose of us talking about and learning and sharing a bit more about the kingdom of God on a Sunday morning is reminding us that there is a bigger story to going on around us than just you and I, than just what's happening here this morning. That we've talked about it being like a thread that's winding its way through history and then it's a thread that we get to catch hold of. That when it seems as though life might be just be getting a little bit out of control, Facebook, anyone? There is something that never changes. There is something that is always advancing. There is something, there's a story that has been told over hundreds of years and is being told every day in our lives in different ways. And it is the story of the kingdom of God. And it's not a far off story. It's not something that's just contained in a dusty old book that sits on a high up shelf. It's a story that's living and active. And it's a story of which you can become a major character. Now, some of you are sat there just going, what on earth is she talking about? Um, Perhaps. um, And what does this have to do with me? But the short answer is, when we talk about this thing, the kingdom of God, we're not trying to use religious language. We're not trying to um, say something that sounds lofty and unattainable. Really, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're just talking about God being present. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're not praying for something new to happen, for something different to happen. It's not like a grade four prayer. You know, most of us at grade one, but when we pray, thy kingdom come, we've actually, we've attained something. We're grade four and something that didn't happen at grades one, two or three is going to happen. That is not what I'm talking about. The kingdom of God is just where God is. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we're just asking for more of God. And if we want to know what that looks like, we just have to look at the person of Jesus because Jesus is what the kingdom of God looks like. A couple of weeks ago, you may recall, Phil did an incredible overview of the whole of the Old Testament, which I like to call the box set. And Steve spoke last week on the Exodus and why we worship, which was really powerful and really important. So if you missed any of those talks, I really encourage you to go back and read them because you will find them really helpful. But now it's my turn to tell you about one episode in the box set, um, a particular time and place in this great arc of biblical history. We're sort of drawing back the curtains, as it were, and we're asking, what was God saying back then and what does it mean for us today? However, first of all, I'd like to get your imaginations going a little bit. I'd like you to think a bit for me about a situation where you found yourself in the middle of something. It may just have been in the middle of university, um, a revision period, 
Um, it may be in the middle of something work-related, where you've got your eye on sort of something further up the corporate ladder and you know exactly what it is that you need to do to get there and you're sort of thinking about this. This is some process that you're very much in the middle of. Maybe uh, it's more sport-related for you. Maybe the hours that you're putting in are at the gym. And uh, maybe it's something more personal. Maybe it's something relational or some place in your life where at one time or perhaps now where you feel like you're just sort of hanging in there. I heard someone say once that the hardest place to be isn't at the beginning of something, but that it's in the middle. At the beginning, we tend to have sort of vision. We have a reason for starting, a purpose. And uh, generally, we have quite a lot of naivety about whatever it is that we're taking on. And it's that sort of thing that helps get us started, helps get us going. And then when the end is in sight, we can usually find sort of a bit of energy to get us to the finish line, to hang on for a few more months, or to keep going in the midst of a marathon, say, or against a sort of that revision period when you can see the end is in sight. But what about when you're in the middle? And when you're in the middle, you can't see where you started from. You've lost sight of that vision and purpose and naivety that you maybe started off with and yet you still can't see the end. You know that if you keep going, you should be able to see light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you'll see it soon, but right now you can't see that light at the end of the tunnel, because right now you're in the middle. There's no going back, things have changed too much. You can't just go back to where you started from, but there's no sign of the finish line either. In the Bible, there's a man called Isaiah, and he was given the task of speaking to God's people on God's behalf at a time when they were very much stuck in the middle. We know, as we've talked about it over the last few weeks or so and before then, that God had taken a very dysfunctional family and out of them he had created a nation. That at one time they had been nothing more than helpless slaves in Egypt. That's the story of the Exodus, where they're miraculously released from captivity and they're delivered from Pharaoh's kingdom to establish one of their own. God had made promises to this family, and although he'd kept his side of the promise, the people had not kept theirs. These people had been invited into a very unique relationship with God. He had promised to be their king. He was going to be merciful. He was justice-seeking. He was righteous. He was a loving king. And his character would be reflected in this kingdom by his people. But unfortunately, as we read this story, as we see how it unfolds, we see that they had not lived up to their side of the bargain. Their side, their promise, had been to love him with all of their hearts and to love their neighbors as themselves. But Isaiah paints a very different picture. He tells the people what God sees instead. In Isaiah 1, God says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned their backs on him. So most of what Isaiah has to say is a form of prophecy in this book that we call the book of Isaiah about the consequences of forsaking this God, 
the destruction that will come at the hands of other nations and the exile that these people will eventually be carried into. The promise that God made appears to have come to nothing and soon there will be almost nothing left of the people of God. They are a people very much in the middle. They are deeply stuck in the middle of what seems to be a very different outworking of the story. But they are still God's people and he is still their God. So even as Isaiah warns of the consequences of their sin and the destruction that is still to come, even before the exile has happened, Isaiah begins to talk about God's rescue plan. And this, if you're sitting comfortably, is the message of Isaiah. Dear little flock, you're all wandering away from me, like sheep in an open field. You have always been running away from me, and now you're lost, and you can't find your way back. But I can't stop loving you. I will come to find you. So I am sending you a shepherd to look after you and love you, to carry you home to me. You've been stumbling around in the darkness, but into the darkness a bright light will shine. A little baby will be born, a royal son. His mummy will be a young girl who doesn't have a husband. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. He is one of King David's children's children's children, the Prince of Peace. Yes, someone is going to come and rescue you. But it won't be anyone that they expect. He will be a king, but he won't live in a palace. And he won't have lots of money, he will be poor. And he will be a servant, but this king will heal the whole world. He will be a hero. He will fight for his people and rescue them from their enemies. But he won't have big armies and he won't fight with swords. He will make the blind see. He will make the lame leap like the deer. He will make everything the way that it was always meant to be. But people will hate him and they won't listen to him. He will be like a lamb. He will suffer and die. It's the secret rescue plan, the one we made from before the beginning of the world. It's the only way to get you back. But he won't stay dead. I will make him alive again. And one day, when he comes back to rule forever, the mountains and the trees will dance and sing for joy. The earth will shout aloud. His fame will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Everything sad will come untrue. Even death is going to die. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him, watch for him, wait for him. He will come, I promise. That's a summary of the whole book of Isaiah. It's a lot easier to understand than the real thing. Uh, but I encourage you, now you've heard the summary, go and read it for yourself. You know, the Old Testament is very challenging, but it's a great thing to try and get your teeth into and find people that you can wrestle it through with. The language of Isaiah particularly is beautiful. And whilst you're reading it, keep an eye on what the journey has looked like so far. Uh, it's set in the context of two kings. If you go to 2 Kings 15, you can read the historical context for it. Then in Isaiah, you read the prophetic, you read the poetry, you read what's to come. 
And then at the other height, you keep an eye on what is to come. Keep an eye on the coming king. Because this is how the book of Isaiah unfolds. It's no good looking at it just through one lens. It's like God gives Isaiah multiple pairs of glasses. He's got one that he wears when he's looking and seeing what's around him. Then he takes those off and God gives him another pair to see what's just ahead of him. Then he takes those off and God gives him another pair to see what's coming, to see what's far ahead. So despite many chapters of warning and judgment, Isaiah speaks first to a people stuck in the middle of the story. He speaks comfort to these people in their time and he speaks to them of restoration even before they've experienced destruction. He speaks to them of a return to the land before they've even left it. And then Isaiah changes his glasses and he speaks to them of a coming king who we recognize in the person of Jesus. Isaiah contains the prophecies of the virgin birth in chapter 9. It contains prophecies of Jesus' death in Isaiah 53. And it includes words that Jesus speaks aloud about himself in Isaiah 61. But Isaiah's listeners at this time had heard the promises of a coming king before. It had been seen in part, but for them now, it appears that the promise has come to nothing because they were people living in the middle of this promise. They go on to be scattered, just as Isaiah had said, and many years they return, just as Isaiah had said. But there was still more to come. There was more to the promise than this. Throughout Isaiah, God starts to announce that he will do a new thing. And what starts as a whisper becomes a shout through the words of the prophets that are to follow. Jeremiah writes during this exile, instructing those stuck in the middle in a foreign country how they are to live. And he speaks through Ezekiel, who shares more of the promise with us of what is to come. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I will make a new covenant with my people. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36 goes further and God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will be my people, and I will be your God. This is the promise of the coming kingdom, a better way to live than the way that we see all around us. Jesus described the kingdom as a mustard seed. He described it as yeast in the dough. It's hidden. So much of it is internal. It starts in here. But it is living and it is active and it has an energy all of its own because it's embodied within us by the Spirit of God. In Joel 2, another prophet speaks to us of what is on God's heart as this whisper becomes louder and louder. He says, afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. You see, what had been centered in one nation with one people called to follow their God in a particular way, God was turning inside out. 
This was not a second thought. We can see signs of it all along the way. But with each generation, with each spokesperson, it is getting louder and louder. Now, just in case you still think that this story is limited to the voices of dusty old men, let's redress the balance a little. (laughs) Philip Yancey reminds us, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role of losers. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. But, much to their surprise, Jesus honored instead people who have little value in the visible world. The poor and the meek, the persecuted and those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and thirsty. And for me, this is reflected throughout the story of the kingdom. This is part of the radical inclusion that the kingdom promises us. Some of my favorite stories, my favorite heroes from the Old Testament. Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, who bore Abraham's illegitimate son, Ishmael, as one of the first people to name God. Rahab, the prostitute, who rescued the spies Joshua had sent into Jericho. Esther, the concubine, who risked her life to save God's people from persecution. Or Mary, the virgin girl who became the mother of God. Or the nameless Samaritan woman who survived the shame of five marriages to share a cup of water with Jesus and bring revival to her village. Or the women who were last at the cross and first at the grave who were the original fearless evangelists of the resurrection. On and on and on it goes. It isn't difficult to find these individuals. It might just not be a story that you've heard or read but I encourage you to go back through your Bibles and look for the people whose voices you haven't heard before. There are men and women like you, ordinary men and women like you, who offer nothing in the eyes of the world, but who have been invited and included and transformed by the story of the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom is a place where the last will be first, where it is better to surrender your life than to gain the whole world where those who mourn are preferred and where the voiceless are heard because it's shaped by mercy and justice and worship and compassion and power and peace. And its king, Jesus, showed us what it looks like to live like that if you're willing to surrender your kingdom to his. Dallas Willard wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I'm in the care of someone else. I've taken my kingdom and I've surrendered it to the kingdom of God. As you do this, as we do this, as some of us are finding that we are willing to surrender our kingdom to his kingdom, he will come and live in you. By his spirit, he will enable you to experience the life of the kingdom for yourself. And he will translate what that looks like into your life. And it might not look like what it looks like in my life. Some of us are called to great wealth somehow. I don't know what that's going to look like. You don't know what that looks like. But you may end up becoming some wealthy city worker. And we need to honor you for that and not resent you for that, but not idolize you for that. Some of you are going to be called to lay down your lives and give up things financially, which you are going to find difficult and uncomfortable. And we need to honor you for that and not resent you for that, but also not idolize you for that. Okay, thanks for that. (laughs) Because we are all called to live 
life in the middle, in the tension to see the kingdom of God expressed in the lives that we live. We are stuck somehow between glorious power and often unspeakable pain. We are overwhelmed by his presence one minute and stunned by his silence the next. We are confident of his kindness and then we find ourselves doubtful that it could all be too good to be true. That's just the way it is because this is the now and the not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom is here now. The promise has been fulfilled. Jesus came. It's broken through. We've seen people. We may not have seen people. We've seen people raised from the dead. That's happened. Death has been overcome in the life of Jesus. So it has broken through. We feel it all around us. We know God to be at work in our lives. And yet the world is broken and we are messy. And it's not as good as it's going to be one day because the fullness of the promise is still to come. And yet when the kingdom does come, when we experience it in our midst, it reveals something better than the world could ever offer us. Pete Gregg has described it like this. Sometimes we want God to airlift us out of our problems, but he more often than not parachutes in and joins us in the midst of them. This is what God does, and this is what he did. Steve was reminding us that the church worldwide is celebrating Palm Sunday today, when the promised saviour, our king, rode into Jerusalem just as another prophet had announced. Zechariah was also a priest, He was one of those returning to the land from exile, just as God had promised. And he wrote this some 400 years before what we know as Palm Sunday. He announced, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. See, your king comes to you. Your king is coming. He is righteous and having salvation. He is gentle and riding on a donkey. God doesn't often behave in a way that we like or expect or are comfortable with. The Roman Empire was used to seeing triumphal processions, the arrival of conquering soldiers. But here was God, as man, riding on a borrowed donkey. This was not unheard of in those times. Often returning leaders and kings would ride on donkeys. That's not the, uh, that's not the controversial, that's not the point. The point is that in the midst of celebration and the crowds longing to make him their earthly king, Jesus knew that the only route to his kingdom coming was through the cross was through crucifixion, was through laying his life down. He knew that there was no other way to fulfill the promise to establish this new covenant with us than for him to give his life for ours. We call the week ahead Holy Week. It's a time of feasting and fasting, of prayer and remembrance. There's a day of feasting followed by confession on Shrove Tuesday, Pancake Day. Gotta love that. A day of repentance on Ash Wednesday is an opportunity, it's an occasion to receive forgiveness. We celebrate the Last Supper on Maundy Thursday, and we call the day that Jesus died Good Friday. Then we sit uncomfortably with the darkness of Holy Saturday, remembering the hopeless finality of Jesus' death, whilst longing for the miracle of his resurrection. But you cannot have one without the other. So whatever it is that you've experienced in your life, God already has a plan for your rescue and your restoration. When Isaiah introduces us to this king, he calls him Emmanuel, and we know it means God with us, God with you. God is in the midst of his people, every one of us, everywhere, because God has made a promise. The apostle Paul tells us that the presence of the Holy Spirit 
when we experience the Spirit of God in our life, is a deposit, a guarantee that there is more to come. It's not a guarantee of carefree lives. We don't often stick a fridge magnet uh, in our house saying, uh, Jesus said, I promise you there will be trouble. <laughs> Has anyone got that fridge magnet? <laughs> no, that's what I thought. Jesus did not promise us carefree lives, but he promised us kingdom full lives. Lives lived very much in the tension, in the middle, but never alone, never empty-handed, and never without expectation of more to come. Shall we stand?